Well, let's talk about tough because you got blown up and you lost three limbs and part of your ear. Well, yeah, that's the part that hurt the most. I have a plastics doctor that uh, is uh, willing to fix that for me, but I, he walked into the hospital room one day and it's like, Hey man, uh, my name's Dr. Sousa. I'm here to do, you know, I'm a plastic surgeon. I did all your uh, stuff on your skin there and tied, tied it back in together. Um, by the way, I can do something about that ear if you want. And I grabbed my right ear and I said, what's wrong with my ear? <laughs> He's like, clearly that doesn't bother you. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I like to tell, tell kids that, uh, when they ask me what happened to my ear, that it, Uh, I moved in the barber chair. (laughs) These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. State your name for the record, please. Andrew Betrell. It's 2020. Sure is. Are you sticking with 2000? You're not going to say 2020? You're just going to roll through the entire century saying 2000? I think so. Okay. It's going to be a lot of wasted time, but I think it'll be well worth it in the end. Andrew and I have been out here at El Contin for the past couple of days, and Andrew has been hunting and I've been guiding. And so far, we've all been fairly successful individually in our endeavors. Um, Andrew, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I'm a former champion shark fighter. I um, Tell me about the shark fighting. It's come up a couple times today. Uh, well, so it's illegal in America, but it's like a cross between bullfighting and alligator wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, again, illegal in America because of PETA and whatnot. But uh, if you're good in the water, you can go down to Mexico on a weekend and you can jump in a shark pen in the water and fight a shark with a knife and people bet on it. It's like cockfighting or dogfighting. Mm-hmm. But um, you have to compl- you have to finish the shark to get your money. And so it took me three tries and I did get my money, but it's, it's I paid a price. Uh-huh. And what, so. what was that price? Uh, well, you know, I'm missing my right leg below the knee and my left leg above the knee and my left arm above the elbow, but, uh, you know. Yeah, you got the shark I, in the end. I did, and, you know, it, it's worth it. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems worth it. Yeah. Because yeah. you're, I mean, you've got some pretty cool prosthetics. Your yeah. Right, your right arm's fairly I mean, strong now. Yeah, it is. It's, I've, yeah, when you... When every day's arm day at the gym, you just <laughs> you really go for it, man. I've always joked about how, like, if certain certain animals were to try and bite me, they might chip a tooth. But um, you know, it's they have a lot of teeth, sharks. So I don't know if it'd make a difference. But <laughs> the um, what was your other question? Uh, the yeah. oh, oh, just. Uh, so the the background on who you are, like where did you grow up? Oh yeah, so I grew up in Wisconsin, where the cows outnumber the people, um, and it's it was good, good upbringing, good family, all that. Uh, he, yeah, joined the military right out of high school because I hated school and wanted to do something cool. So, why was school hard for you? 
Well, uh, why didn't you like it? I guess is a it wasn't. Question. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily hard. I joined the Navy, not the Marine Corps, but the um, the it was just boring, man. I didn't. Yeah. It wasn't like it was indoors. It was not outdoors. I didn't get to blow stuff up on the regular. So uh, joined the military and eventually made way my way into uh, Navy EOD and then. Uh, yeah. And EOD is Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Correct, yeah. So they they are the Navy's, well, the military's bomb squad. They go to a joint school. Uh, it's one of the only or the only um, joint schools where everybody has the same pin, like mm-hmm. the warfare pin. Um, and uh, they you learn everything from uh, like a recoilless rifle or a hand grenade up through a nuclear warhead and everything in between so i don't know if people really understand how important eod is to modern warfare because the the ied the improvised explosive device Mm -hmm. which is you know a homemade bomb of, of you know all kinds of ways that you can do it yeah but that has been you know one of the biggest home wreckers out there in the war you know where previously it may have been may have been bullets or or yeah. grenades or or whatever like the mm-hmm. these sort of mm-hmm. improvised landmines have now become the thing that really restricts movement that causes tremendous amounts of damage to both vehicles and people yeah. and EOD are the ones you call like they're the ghostbusters for for these bombs when you can identify them ahead of time or if mm-hmm. you're trying to identify them yeah yeah so um actually more people uh in the OIF, OEF were killed from IEDs than bullets. Yeah. Way more. By a lot. By not, yeah, not even close. Um, so yeah, it, it, and that was something that even a lot of the military guys didn't necessarily understand. Um, there were, there were people that I worked with that were way more worried about getting shot than IEDs. And I was like, bro, you, you can't outrun a blast wave. You may think you can, but nope you can't do it yeah and a a bullet requires time and space to come together Mm -hmm. um an ied can wait forever yeah it's it's the yeah it's just uh depending upon the complexity of the device it it can be it can be very complex it can be i mean you you can't touch it you can't move it you can't freaking breathe on it wrong it'll go off or it can be as simple as like you just connect two pieces of metal through with a spring in between them by stepping on it it's done yeah so yeah and as as our technology for identifying them got more sophisticated in some ways the ieds became less sophisticated and they started using more wood and carbon and things like that that were more difficult for us to detect yeah and you know you can't just go slow everywhere nope like you you have this time on this, target, this vast yeah. amount of country that you've got to travel and you can't just go and like poke the ground every two inches yeah. and, and try and figure out where these things are. Like you've got places to go and yeah. routes are predictable and, and these IDs are waiting for you. And they really learned it, I think, from from the Soviets, right? Especially in Afghanistan. Well, we taught them because we taught them how to 
do it on the Soviets. Like, but the Soviets mined Afghanistan. Oh yeah, a lot. they they mined it. That's they they understand mines and stuff. It's all IED using IEDs as a as a guerrilla warfare, or, you know, counterinsurgency type or insurgency type mm-hmm. warfare mindset. And you're right. Yeah, they they would watch us. They would see you know once they were, they saw these guys waving this magic wand across the ground and finding the IED. They're like, oh well. Why is that? They figured out that we were using metal detectors. Oh, well, I can make an IED out of something without metal. I'm living in the Stone Age, basically. Uh, I'll use wood. And they were making non-magnetic, non-ferrous, non-metal IEDs. They They would hollow out a stump, put some freaking bang in the bottom of it, and then at the top of it, there would be a, a spike that was, you know, just stuck in the top so that you step on that little pressure pad that they made on top of that spike. It would heat shock or friction that uh, that bang, that primary explosive at the top and set off the main charge. And there you go. And I think it's easy for some people to to look at at Afghans, especially as a culture, and be like, oh, they're, they're Stone Age, they're primitive, you know, they're, they're, they're way, way back in the times, they're living in mud huts with their animals and, and whatever. But these people are tough, and they're very, very smart and very, very resilient, and they've been fighting wars their entire lives. Dude, if they're, if they're so stupid and easy to beat, why have we been fighting them for over almost two decades? And nobody's ever beaten them. Nobody's ever beaten them. Alexander the Great lost. Yeah. Like, come yep. on. Exactly. It's hard. Well, I, hard people. There's Yeah, there's a lot of hard people there. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's, yeah. We are, yeah, fighting comes down to men at some point. Um, you can throw as much, much technology and high-end warfare devices at it you want, but comes down to the dudes at at the end i think yep yeah and you know when people talk about that they'll say you know what are you made of right <laughs> well if you if you grew up in afghanistan you're made of something tough because that is not an easy upbringing well let's talk about tough because you got blown up and you lost three limbs and part of your ear well yeah that's the part that hurt the most i have a plastics doctor that uh, is uh willing to fix that for me but i he walked into the hospital room one day and it's like hey man uh my name's dr Souza. i'm here to do you know i'm a plastic surgeon i did all your uh stuff on your skin there and tied tied it back in together um by the way i can do something about that ear if you want and i grabbed my right ear and i said what's wrong with my ear (laughs) he's like clearly that doesn't bother you (laughs) never mind but yeah uh i like to tell tell kids that uh when they asked me what happened to my ear, that it, uh, I moved in the barber chair. <laughs> I had a I had a kid ask me that, and it was two brothers. It was a friend of mine from work, and uh, it was his sons. And one of them asked me, you know, "What happened to your ear?" And I was like, "Well, you know how your parents tell you not to move when you're sitting in the barber chair." He's like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Well, you should listen to them." And the older the older boy was like, "No." The younger boy. Stared at my ear for the rest of the night. Didn't say another word. <laughs> Next time I saw him two years later, he had hair down to his shoulders. Nice. That was hilarious, dude. Nice. Oh, man. Well, going on an elk hunt is a challenging thing, right? There's not an easy way. 
Like there's no easy button on, on this type of hunting when you have like full capability of your body. Um, and nationally, people average one elk for every 10 years of elk hunting. It's really tough. It's a tough thing to do. And when you look at, you know, the, the prices that people have to pay for, for outfitters and stuff, it, it's literally cheaper to go to South Africa and hunt three or four animals and fly back than it is to go on a guided Western elk hunt. Okay. It's, it, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's expensive. It's a lot of different things, but Andrew rolls out here with one functioning limb and gets it done in the first day. And I don't want to talk too much about the, the hunt itself because we're making a video about it and people are going to get to see that if they want to. But I think that it is freaking hilarious that after you shot, your uh, your robotic hand <laughs> kind of got a mind of Fell its own off. and started spinning. And I get I get over there to you and you say, grab the rifle. My hand fell off. <laughs> <laughs> like this is just something that I've not had to deal with as a guide previously. And you've guided a lot. <laughs> and, I, uh, <laughs> and that's saying it, something. It, 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 might, uh, it might happen again. Who knows? But... Uh, we'll, yeah, we never know. we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the actual technology that's in your arm and you're about to get an upgrade and, and I'd like yeah. to hear a little bit about that, but can you kind of talk through how, how this works and sort of the, the capabilities that you have now and, and what you hope to gain in this next upgrade? Yeah. So, um, right now I've got osseo integration in my left arm and my left leg. Uh, which means that there's a helicoil or a threaded insert in my humerus and my femur. And screwed into that is, uh, and sticking out through the skin is like a square bolt head that's uh, longer. And that's what the prosthetic attaches to. Uh, traditionally, what's uh, the prosthetic is attached by like a socket, like on my right leg. It's got a carbon fiber socket and it just, it's formed they basically take an impression of your leg and they recreate the outside of it and make it out of carbon fiber um, and plastic. Well, I switched over to the osseo integration, which was a long process at Walter Reed, but well worth it, way more comfortable, way more functional. Um, the band that sits on the outside of the skin of my left arm has uh, eight different little, I think it's actually 16, but there's eight sets of, well, seven, because we got rid of one. But uh, So there's 14 different centers that are sitting on the outside of the arm, and they're feeling for movement underneath the skin. Um, the movement that they're looking for is the movement that would happen at the end of the nerves that run to, or used to run, to my thumb, my wrist, and my elbow. They tied into the end of those nerves uh, little pieces of muscle from my bicep and tricep. And when you do that, what's really cool is that that nerve uh, then fires that muscle. It mm -hmm. actually flexes it. So once you fire that neural pathway, it flexes the little muscle. That movement is picked up by the band, and then it translates. The band controls the prosthetic elbow and wrist and, uh, well, grypher claw. It's like a little open and closed thing. And that's my, my hand. Um, it's a great system compared to like some of the body power like some of the the 
very early prosthetic stuff. Even the body power stuff is actually pretty good. I don't like it because it's, you know, you have to have a uh, harness that's over your shoulder and you, mm-hmm. use, you have to move your shoulder just right to put the elbow in position and rotate the wrist manually and then you open and close the hand by moving your shoulder. Um, there's guys that are like quadruple amputees that can like, with two body powers, can freaking open a freaking starburst, dude. They're like really good at it. Um, Which I struggle with, to be completely honest with you. Well, you've you got some I've sh- big old sausage I, fingers. I don't, I don't have the fingernails. I fingernails are true. clutch for starburst. Yeah, I think. they are. They are. That's it's, yeah. It's when you give them to your your lady and let her <laughs> do do what she does with those things. Um, so all that's uh, I guess like. In answer to your question, that's like what the technology, that's how it works. That's the system that I have right now. Mm-hmm. And the reason that my hand um, fell off after I shot that elk was uh, I had I had my, my elbow above 45 degrees from plane of my uh, chest. Um, so as I raise my arm, uh, the the band picks up the movement of the skin under the band and, and it and misinterprets that as movement of the, the electrode on, you know, or the, uh, little muscle belly under the skin. Right. So it starts doing things without me wanting it to, which once, uh, just cause of the position that I was in, uh, holding up the, the, um, rifle, the forend of the rifle with that arm and shooting slightly up towards that elk, it was causing that hand to spin, which was, and when, when you take the hand off of the elbow, that's how you do it. You spin it. Gotcha. So the rifle was holding the hand straight, but the motor was turning the thing. Yep. So it was unscrewing my hand for me. Yeah. Um, which is slightly inconvenient in multiple scenarios, as you can imagine. But, um, in but it's also amazing. Right, dude. It's it's so yeah. I mean, like you think about to your point. We you think about like how far we've come as far as like what we're putting into prosthetics, which has mostly been driven by you know the last like we were just talking about almost two decades of war and the casualties that have come from that those IEDs. That's what's driven it. That's why the knee that I'm walking on my left side is is what it is. That was that was funded by the government to develop. Mm-hmm. in response to all the um so i'm like one of i think like 26 triple amputees from oif oef um and that to me seems like a low number but that's just based off like that's my perspective too like i've been around a lot of amputees and i'm like ah, freaking, they're, they're, we're not well, and you survived yeah well there's a lot of people that survived like i i mean there's triple amputees that survived Vietnam. Yeah. Like, it wasn't new. Like, But I guess the point that I'm making there is there's a lot of people that sustained those type of injuries who did not survive. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like, um, they, <laughs> the guys that worked on me did a really good job. So uh, when I got hit, the, the guy and one of the guys in the vehicle behind me was an 18 Delta, which is a... Uh, like a combat medic for those who don't know what that is. That is, they've been through, uh, incredible combat medical training. Uh, they go and they spend, uh, a bunch of time in an ER in an inner city specifically to get experience with gunshot wounds. Mm -hmm. And the only people that don't know that there are 
that those people, those individuals are doctors are the other doctors. Um, they're, uh, yeah. So the reason I'm alive is because of, uh, an 18 Delta. You stay in touch with him? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, I mean, it's not, you know, it's the standard military stay in touch kind of deal. We get together when we're together and then it, it's, it's the same brotherhood type thing where you, you, you can go years without seeing somebody pick up right where you left off when you see him again. But, um, yeah, really, really good dude. Um, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about tourniquets? Uh, so they probably helped save my life. I mean, I'm pretty sure there were like at least two on each of my limbs that were bleeding. Plus there's probably two or three at least. And I don't know. What do you, why do you ask? That's a, well, when I, question. when I first got back, um, you know, I had to take first aid CPR to, to start guiding again. Yeah. And they're like, all right, don't put on tourniquets unless you absolutely have to. And, you know, if you do, then that, you know, you're kissing that limb goodbye. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that is so far from true. And, and in your, your case, you did. Mm. But the reality is, like, I've worn, <laughs> worn tourniquets myself. I've, I've put them on a lot of people that, you know, have their limbs to this day. Yeah. Um, t- I think tourniquets are wonderful. And they, you know, they're on the very top of, of my first aid kit. Like, that's the first thing when I open them oh, because yeah. it's the biggest life-saving tool that I can possibly have. Oh, yeah. I know guys that carry tourniquets on them daily. I know... Um, I, so let me just kind of, so I'm not a doctor. I've gone through combat medical training and, you know, TCCC stuff the, the, in the, in the military where we use tourniquets. Um, I'll tell you the, the idea that if you put a tourniquet on a limb, you're going to lose that limb is, uh, outdated. There may, there might have been a time where that was the case. I doubt it. I it's just if you leave a tourniquet on a limb long enough, and especially if that limb doesn't need it, then yes, you will lose that limb because that limb will die. Right. Uh, lack of blood flow, it'll turn blue and it'll freaking eventually turn black and fall off, right? Like, but the uh, my <laughs> I didn't lose my limbs because of a tourniquet. They were uh, they weren't whole before the tourniquets went on. Right. Um, I mean the that 18 Delta told me one night that uh, he could tell when I was in the air that uh, I was missing parts before, like, yeah. He's like, you were 30 feet up, and I could tell you were missing parts. Yep. So um, definitely not from tourniquets. Tourniquets kept what little blood in my body that there probably still was at that point. I think um, they gave me over, like, 40 units, uh, and that seems like a lot to me and it is a lot because most times uh later i found out that usually they stop giving blood to people after like 20 units but i guess i just kept staying alive somewhat and they kept pumping blood into me so yeah that's good that's that was my experience too um yeah is that one of the biggest developments that that we saw during my time in Afghanistan, which is, you know, 2012, 2013, um, they were able to move a lot of blood through people quickly. And by doing so, they could keep people alive that they were never able to do 
before. Yeah, um, the first quadruple amputee that they saved from OAFOAF didn't happen until like 2009. Um, I got hit in 2011, like two years later. Yep. So I I don't know, man. I I they got me out of that spot pretty quick. They had they had the Kazivac there. It wasn't, we weren't in the middle of a tick or anything, so it was in the middle of the night. Nobody was fighting us. Um, yeah, it, they got me in through, they went to like two places in Afghanistan on the way out and then stopped in Launchfield, Germany for a few days until they were, they had me stabilized enough. And I think about a week after I got hit, I was flying back into the, the U.S. into Walter Reed. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question for you. You know, it's, and I got to set, set the scenario first, mm-hmm. um, as, as a, as a troop in the United States military, and I don't care what branch you're in, you feel pretty strong and confident about who you are and what the capabilities of you, um, as a part of your unit become. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was, I was already a really cocky kid. And then, um, and then I became a Marine, and then they put me in charge of four tanks, Abrams, M1, A1, main battle tanks. Yeah. And I really felt invincible. Like, I felt yep. like I cannot be destroyed. Yep. Um, it was a quarter million pounds of the angriest metal on the planet, and I shook the earth when I went places. Yeah. It was impressive. And to go from that mindset to getting hurt and almost getting killed and seeing people get hurt badly and seeing people get killed. It takes a really serious mental toll and, and a big recalibration about your sense of mortality. Yeah. Did you experience any of that? And then how did you come back from it? Yeah. Um, that is a great question. So, um, part of what you just described was defining yourself by what you did and what you could do um depending a lot on your physical capabilities and i was the same way i i was navy ud working with the navy seals which means i was in shape i could shoot a gun like a demon i could i could do a lot of really cool things that were really hard that i really liked doing And I wanted to do that job for the rest of my life, as long as I possibly could. And one day, that was all wiped away. And I had to figure out what I was worth and what I could do. And, yes, I don't know that I would say it takes a toll. I think that's maybe the wrong uh, way of describing what it is. It's an experience that has made me much better. I had to define myself the right way after that. Um, I had a, a very, probably what you would call heavy conversation with a friend. Uh, and, uh, at a very low point, I was like, yeah, um, I got one arm left. What good am I? 
and he looked at me and he said, you still got your brain. And thankfully, uh, I was open-minded enough to take that and do the right thing with it. I was like, yep, you're right. And from that moment on, I figured out what I could do with my brain. A good friend of mine, uh, Tim Brown, is at Marine EOD Tech, and and one of the things that he, he, he said it best, and I hesitate to say anything that he does is best, but um, he's a good friend. And uh, he's like, he's a triple amputee. So he's like, yeah. Um, and he came and visited me, actually, in, in Bethesda in my room. Uh, right after I was hit. Um, and uh, he's like, this is years later when we were talking. He's like, yeah, man. Or actually, I didn't even hear him say it to me. He said it on like a podcast or something. But he's like, yeah, I used to, I would think about what I could do, not what I couldn't do. And uh, I was like, I was thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what you got to do. You got to focus on what you can do instead of what you can't and then once you establish what you can do you push that envelope you push that boundary you say okay well um how can i do more how can i improve upon this and that's beaten into us in eud school you always improve your situation it's not you if you if you are given any kind of scenario and and or anything in the eod community especially in the av community uh, you, you better improve it dude you <laughs> that's not an option you you will improve the situation of whatever you are given and so uh when my buddy was like yeah you still got your brain i was like all right well let's see what i can do with this and i started doing stuff i that would and that and that from that uh is kind of the beginning of my redefinition of myself and figuring out what like yeah figuring out what to do or like how to define myself um and so i sat down and i've uh written out a whole bunch of stuff on it and everything but i definitely have a definition for myself now and it does not include anything that you can physically do it is definitely more of the attributes you know like I'm a husband, I'm a father, I, I'm an honorable warrior, you know, I'm, I'm honest, I'm a hard worker, I'm a problem solver. I mean, you can kill the hell out of a bull elk. <laughs> well, you said there's no easy switch for it, but that 277 Fury has a little switch on it that makes it pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, they call that the safety. <laughs> <laughs> What advice do you have to people that, that might be feeling in a way that you were when you were down? Like, you know, I, they're, they're unhappy with the way they consider their capabilities and, uh, and you know, they, they're, they're just feeling in the dumps about it and maybe don't see a way forward. Like, what, what's that first step? Um, and, and maybe they don't have that friend to say, hey – get your shit together. Like you've still got something work on that. Like, you know, if somebody's all on their own, like what can they do? Well, yeah. Um, there's a lot you can, you can say there's a lot 
Um, life is struggle. Nothing's easy. But uh, to that person, I, w- I would basically say the same thing. Well, what can you do? Focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. There's a certain set of circumstances that uh, any one of us could go through that we could be, you know, facing uh, the, the question of whether or not to go on living, like to just check out or or what. But um, people that that are in those situations oftentimes lose track of uh, the bigger picture. Like there's not going to be ultimate suffering for the rest of your life if you work at it. Uh, you do have to work at it. It's hard. It's not easy. Nothing in life worth having is easy. But any one of us, well, that's why empathy is so important. That's why we were talking the other day. I was like, man, empathy is probably one of the most important things I want to impart on my child. And I've and I've said this in front of a crowd of people too. There's a certain set of circumstances that any one of us could go through that could put us in the moment where we would take our own lives because in 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 that moment that we know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no hope of our life ever being anything other than ultimate suffering then why would you live into that so when somebody is in that situation you have to be able to communicate to them. You have to be able to empathize with their position and their perspective of that life picture in their head so that they will listen to you because they won't listen to you. If you, if you have no empathy or no understanding, do you listen to anybody that doesn't have any understanding of what you're going through? Probably not. Yeah, why would you? Yeah. They don't understand why. What do they know? It has no bearing. Like, so to... It's really hard to actually say something to somebody, say the right thing to somebody in that situation because it, you have to understand where they're coming from. So you have to empathize with that and then you have to show them that it can get better. So people that have asked me, like, how do you, how do you get somebody who's in any horrible situation, whether, you know, it's a drug addiction or depression, anxiety, um, you know, homeless, like missing limbs, doing, facing cancer, doing all this stuff, right? The, the really crappy parts of life that, that exist. Like, how do you get them to where they're having, they're living well? Like most people think that I am. And, And I do too, by the way, I, I will tell you this, and this is kind of uh, crazy, but I'll tell you my life is better now than it was before. And that isn't because of getting opportunities like this. I it, it partly it is. It enriches your life. That is like to be here with you and 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 have this experience and everything. Yeah, but my life is better because I worked my butt off for the last nine years at becoming a better person the harder i work at becoming a better person the better my life becomes that's great you know on that on that empathy and and understanding bit one of the things that 
that sort of rubs me wrong is when people find out that you served in the military and they say thank you for your service. <laughs> and it, you know, that, that bothers a lot of veterans. Yeah. And I understand the sentiment and I, and I do appreciate it. But it's also like, what exactly are you thanking me for if you don't know anything about what I did? So what, what I counsel people to do, and uh, since we're coming up on Veterans Day here, yeah. might, might be your opportunity. Um, if instead of saying thank you for your service, say, hey, what branch were you in? What was your job? If they want to talk about it, you're going to know right away. Yeah. And if they don't, then that's your opportunity to say, well, just want to let you know, I appreciate you, and then move on. If they do want to talk about it, sit down and listen for a little bit and figure out exactly what it is that they did and then thank them for that. Mm -hmm. And that that is real gratitude. That isn't this, this canned stamp of like, oh, military guy, uh, yeah, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what to say to that. Like, you're welcome. No, thank you. Like, you know, yeah, it's awkward, right? Yeah. So I used to get really frustrated with some of the things that other people would say. A lot of times, uh, obviously, people think, obviously, they see me walking through an airport or any public setting. People are like, you in the, were you in the military? Or, you know. Obviously, so I, I've been in that situation a bunch, and I've had a lot of time to think about it. Um, and I see your sentiment. I agree with what you're saying. I think if the veteran is willing to talk about it, then yeah, like sit down and learn about it. Uh, it it it'll happen to me a couple times a day though, and I'm I'm into the whole brevity thing now. Yeah. Like if somebody says thank you for my service, I just respond with appreciate it. Yeah, because from having some empathy about their situation that thank you for your service. They, they didn't have to do that. So they're doing something. They're actually going out of their way to do something that they, they think is right and that they think might benefit you. And they're trying to appreciate even, even if it's an unknown, uh, like they don't know what they're appreciating. They're still making an effort, which for, all intents and purposes, compare that to the response of Vietnam veterans post Vietnam War. Oh yeah. So and, and I think it's largely a reaction to that. Yeah. You know, it we, could be. We we treated Vietnam veterans horribly. Horribly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. and people realize that in retrospect. Like we should not have done that as a yeah. society. So now we're gonna do the opposite thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Okay. You've had to accept a lot of help after getting injured in various ways from various people. And that can be a really difficult thing to do as well. Yeah. How, how do you go about that? And, and how does somebody offer help to you in a way that's unoffensive? Um, yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I usually don't ask for help. There's a lot of time and effort that I've spent to become pretty in independent um there are things that i do appreciate help for and and due to my my own stubbornness and pride this might shock you to know that i i will 
not ask for help <laughs> nine times out of ten, even if I want it. Yeah. Uh, but I people that offer don't just go do it. Don't just walk up and do it. That's that to me is frustrating. That's kind of almost demeaning, right? You you're like, oh. Let's take a little, little break real quick. We're going to go inside and restart this now that that excavator is right next to us. Okay. We're switching gears here. Andrew. Yeah. What does hunting mean to you? Hunting means a lot to me. It It's kind of like a... So it, it kind of stems from a baser need instinct, right? So like food, water, and shelter. That's what we need to exist or to, to sustain life, right? So I need food and I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie. I like good food. Um, I like good quality food cause I care very much about what's left of my body. I'm trying to take really good care of it so that it functions as I can get the most functionality out of it possible. Um, that's why I work out five days a week and I eat right. And that's also stemming from, you know, becoming trying to become the best version of myself possible that's you know in my definition of myself yeah you're out there doing one-arm pull-ups on the meat hook (laughs) that was impressive yeah well you know you gotta gotta do something with your free time and go to the gym or whatever but um thank you by the way so hunting to me is partly you know getting food sustaining life um but it is like it has been like and like I was talking about earlier, like figure out what you can and you can't do and think about what you can do and then move move that boundary. So it's push about the envelope. It's about accomplishing something. It's about getting some food to eat. Yeah. Like that, that fits into your lifestyle. It's healthy to eat. Well right. Fun, fun but, to cook. But also like just I all of us on earth here are responsible for food, water, and shelter. That is, that is your, you have to provide that for yourself. I mean, I'll, there's a lot of times in society where it's very easy to do. You can go to the grocery store, you can pick up food. But if you didn't have a grocery store, what then? Well, you gotta go get food. Um, and there are places in the world that you and I have been to where, like, Grocery stores don't exist, bro. No, not even close. And not even markets. I no, not even. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Those those Afghani kids are tough. Those Afghani's are tough because they have to be. There's no freaking easy corner grocery store to go get some top ramen and freaking smash that down. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's partly to me, it's partly like sustaining life, and it's like a. I draw a lot of um fulfillment and and whatnot from accomplishing that like like, okay i'm eating elk burgers tonight that i i killed this elk i went up and i killed it and then i helped skin it got it took it to the you know i i actually do uh a lot of my own meat processing when i can Mm -hmm. uh and uh, i feel very strongly about that when you take that life when you uh yeah you take the life of the animal you have in my opinion a huge responsibility what responsibility 
you have to honor that life, I think. And how do you do that? I think the the best way to do that is is to kill that animal as humanely as possible. Like you give them the quickest, most painless death possible. And you preserve as much meat throughout that uh, game, you know, the, the gutting and the skinning, the processing. You preserve as much meat as that possible because that meat is going to sustain your life. And all life matters. And that continues to me, that continues on through the consumption of, consumption of that meat. So do your best to become the, the best hunter you can. Become the best shooter, best hunter. Become the best meat processor. Become the best cook that you can possibly be. Because you took that life and now you are going to sustain your life and the lives of your family with that meat. That is how I honor that life. And, uh, and that is what hunting means to me. And you also practice a lot so that it's not just the equipment that is functional. It's also you and your ability to, to be lethal with that rifle. Yes. Yeah. There's people that, that are shooters that a lot of hunters that, and I think this was a conversation you might've had with Daniel Horner, but he talks about visualization a lot and it's awesome, man. Visualization is awesome. We did it in, in the military at high levels because, you know, we were doing, uh, I mean, it's a high stakes game doing the, the EOD thing. Uh, but so I've been, you know, around that mentality uh, before and, and applying it to everything, you know, in your life is kind of a something that a lot of the guys end up doing after being exposed to it and they become much better people for it um but there's a lot of hunters that shoot their guns five shots a year they sight in and they miss a couple times during a hunt and then they get one and they they put that gun away and they've had the same 20 round box of ammo for the last four years and they have never once you know, dry fired that rifle because why would you do that? Um, well, because you might not have a lot of time and it might be kind of beneficial to uh, be able to operate your equipment with speed and efficiency. But there's a lot of dudes that do practice and they don't visualize that end. Like Daniel, and this is what Daniel Horner is, I go swing back to that. Daniel Horner talks about, you know, visualizing you know, matches and and being successful. And he talked about visualizing that final moment of hunting. Like, okay, let's, let's picture the animal coming this way. Let's picture the animal quartered this way. Uh, There's an app on my phone that I use that I did a fair amount of uh, training with looking at different angles of where the heart is in the animal Um, and trying to figure out, okay, all these different angles this is where if it if, if if the target presents in this orientation, this is where I'm holding. And then, yeah, you visualize that because you cannot, like, replace the experience in real life. But um, you can prepare for it significantly by 
picturing it in your head running through that scenario because if your brain recognizes a pattern our brains work in patterns we're very pattern oriented those um, neural pathways are wrapped in myelin and the more layers of myelin they work better there's a there's an 800 percent uh potential for increase in speed through that neural pathway it's insane so if you you practice you visualize yeah you are going to be a better hunter you're going to be more efficient and that i think honors the the life of that animal more yeah i fully agree and there's there's all kinds of of methods for training there's all kinds of equipment yes. that will work <laughs> um and this isn't the podcast about what equipment works well no this this is about the importance of of our actions and taking responsibility for the result and uh man it it's been really fun to uh to be out here and and see you overcoming some some tough obstacles and and getting the job done and i think it's just terrific that you're going home with a big old pile of elk meat and uh i know that you're just gonna sous sous vide every single part of that thing because you <laughs> you've brought up sous vide every seven or eight minutes since you've been here i know you're uh, into it's a that great tool <laughs> so no it's it's been cool and i really uh encourage folks to uh you know, keep an eye on, on SIG's, uh, social media so that they can see, uh, this video come out when it's ready, um, here in a week or so. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's, it'll actually be pretty close to when this podcast comes out. So, um, yeah, man. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, your attitude and, and what you have to offer other people. Pretty motivating guy. And uh, it's it's an honor to to hunt elk with you. It's an honor to be here with you, brother. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.